Very grateful you for coming, Hugo. Over Great. To you. <laughs> well, thank you, John. It's lovely to be here at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And um, I, um, so, um, well, by the way, anyone can interrupt me whenever they like, but I think so, as well as the Q&A. But what I wanted to say is that, I mean, we're talking about how do you create a business, or how do you create a journalism startup, and not just create it, but how do you um, make a success of it? And I mean, the first thing I would say is that setting up any business from scratch is hard. Um, but setting up a news business is particularly hard. And I think there are two reasons for this. One is, um, following on from what John was saying, is that the business model of journalism is in a mess. And this doesn't necessarily make it, I mean, it's bad for the established players, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's easier for the newcomers. Um, we have got, you know, the newspapers, the, the model for newspapers is not working. Um, subscriptions and, and uh, uh, difficult circulation is falling. Um, advertising is falling. Um, but the internet has not really taken over yet as an attractive business model either for the established players or for most of the new entrants. And part of the reason for that is that there is just a hell of a lot of free stuff out there on the web. And so it's just there is, I mean, we talk about the need to create new types of journalism. Um, but in some, some senses, there's, there's perhaps too much journalism out there. At least there's, there's a hell of a lot of, of free Me Too journalism. And in that context, um, that's, the, that's one of the difficulties that um, any media business, any journalism business faces, but also a startup faces. It's, it's not just that, oh, you're a startup, you're new, therefore everything can be done differently, and therefore everything's going to be easy. The other thing that makes a new startup particularly difficult is um, what I call the chicken and egg problem. Um, uh, so, and this is really one of relevance. Why should anybody read you, if you've just set up a business, um, until and unless you're able to produce good journalism. What does good journalism take? It takes basically two things, good journalists and good sources. But this is where the chicken and egg problem comes in. Why should any good journalist join a startup until that organization has got a good base of readers, because journalists don't like to be in the wilderness um, projecting their views into a, back, into a vacuum. And similarly, why should any source speak to you as a journalist until you have an influential readership? I mean, sources 
most of them, when they're rational, they talk to you because they view you as a channel for reaching your audience or readership. If you don't have that, um, why should they talk to you? And then those two things then um, uh, feedback. Again, if a journalist, it's not just that um, as they look at a startup, they're saying, well, where are the readers? They may say, well, who's going to talk to me? Um, because if I don't have an influential audience. So you have got that chicken and egg problem. Um, and for all the difficulties that the established media have at the moment, um, they do have that um, network of journalists, sources, and audience slash readership. Um, and it's a bit like the sort of network monopolies that you get in telecommunications or IT. Um, and so it's very difficult for these two reasons, um, business model and chicken and egg, to um, create a journalism startup. Um, I think in, a, in, in addition to these new specific issues, there are two general points about startups which may be particularly relevant to journalism. Um, one is that you need to build and maintain momentum. Um, when you start something up, it's very easy to be enthusiastic. And I certainly, speaking for myself, at, at, at when, when I started up Breaking Views, it was right in the middle of the dot-com mania, end of 2009, early 2010, I should say, right at the end of the dot-com mania. Um, but we didn't know it at the time. And um, everybody was so excited about this phenomenon and you go around parties in London, and if, if you said you were a dot-com entrepreneur, everybody was really, um, really wanted to know what you were doing and why, etc. So at the start, it's very easy to um, have excitement. But there are very, very few businesses which can um, you know, make a significant breakthrough in a matter of months. It's normally a few years that are required. And you can't just, that enthusiasm um, flags. You can't do it all on 24-7, 24-7, 24-7. At some point, you have to take a rest. And um, the key issue is, can you get to a sort of critical mass before that excitement flags? And if you don't, um, then your enterprise will collapse. And there, there were many, many, many examples of dot-com um, enterprises. I mean, most of the dot-coms that were founded at the same time as Breaking Views, I think about 95% or more, um, collapsed. Um, and that was around a, across a whole range of, of um, industries, but also in um, journalism, too. The other thing that I'd say, which, which does apply to all startups, but I think certainly it, 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 I felt it pretty strongly with breaking views, was the importance of people. Um, 
you know, I mean, it's very easy to sort of think about your business models and your, you know, products and all of those sorts of things. But people really do matter. And it's not just the talent that you need to produce whatever um, product it is um, that matters. It's also, you've just got to, you, you know, in a startup, you are spending so much time on that business. Um, you are... You and your, your relationships with your colleagues gets very intense, much more intense than in a normal um, company or organization. Um, and so it really matters that you get good people. And I mean, we generally speaking got good people, but there was one, one period um, about, you know, actually after the startup phase where relationships between um, people got very fraught and um, it almost led to us tearing the company to bits, um, which would have been um, disastrous. We just managed to, to keep it together, but it, was, it really, really does matter, people. Um, so I'm going to illustrate these, these issues, both the issues, the, 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 the chicken and egg issue and the business model issue, but also the people issue and the momentum issue um, with respect to breaking views. I mean, I'm not, I mean, not going to try and generalize too much. Um, as I said, we started that up in December two, uh, 1999, and we sold it in December 2009 to Thomson Reuters and where it continues to flourish and it's the leading brand for, it's a sub-brand, it still exists as a brand um, and it provides what we call agenda setting uh, financial insight. And uh, our, what, I mean, I would say that it's been both a journalistic success um, and it was a reasonable financial success as well. So the question is, um, what do you do then? Well, the first thing you do, you, you do need to, to do when you're setting up a, a business, any business, but a journalism business, is you, you obviously have to have a good idea. Um, you have to have an idea for a product that you are producing. Um, and um, my view, it should be something different because if you are producing what is already out there in the market, well, it has to be a better version, um, you know, the better mousetrap, as it were. As otherwise, if you're just doing what is already there and you're doing it in the same way that it's being done, um, that's not really going to get you very far. Um, John said that, that in, a, in a way, it was a bit like the FT's Lex column. And indeed it was. Uh, before I set up Breaking Views, I ran the FT's Lex column for about five years. Um, but with, and with, there was one important twist. And the, the important twist was not, not just, or even mainly, that it was on the internet. Um, but it was what that implied, which was that it meant we could be out with our comments on the day that events were happening. So we aimed to be first with the views, whereas in those days, 
um, the FT with its financial comments on corporate and banking and economic matters was always a day late. So if there was a big takeover battle um, within hours, and sometimes less than that, we would be out with our point of view. Um, and you would have to, the dominant player in the market was indeed the FT with the legs column. It was out the next day. And so we had a full, not quite 24 hours, but we probably had about sort of 20 hours or 18 hours um, ahead of the game. Um, now, of course, today, um, that wouldn't sound, I mean, that, that wouldn't give you a comparative advantage because, you know, the FT has moved on, it's got FT.com. I mean, it had FT.com in, in those days, but Lex was not on FT.com. Um, I remember when I was running in Lex, I said, well, we should put it on, we should put it on FT.com. And they said, oh, I'm not, so, not so sure about that, not sure that's a very good idea, blah, blah, blah. So we had the, 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 the um, that was a that was a big that was a that was that was what gave us our initial unique selling point, um, and it was different again from other types of um, dot com journalism that were established at the same time. Um, there were a lot of them. Um, uh, there was there were some that did commentary. Most of them did news. Um, some did a combination of, of news and commentary. Um, a lot of them were focused on finance, um, but they were largely, even those that did financial commentary, which is the sort of area that we focused on, um, they were very much focused on the retail market, the retail investor. There was, in 1999, 2000, early 2000, there was a lot of enthusiasm about how there were going to be lots of day traders who were um, small investors who would be going into the stock market and out of the stock market on a daily basis, sort of buying and selling shares rapidly to take advantage of the latest news developments. And that there were a lot of um, uh, uh, websites that were established to serve that market. We decided we weren't going to serve that market. I mean, it was partly, maybe it was foresight or maybe it was luck. But we decided that what we were going to do was we were going to try to serve the institutional market. So we were going to pitch our commentary not at the retail investors, but at the, um, the professionals, at the investment bankers, at the hedge funds, at the big institutional investors, the sort of the serious heavy duty end of the market. And we thought that ultimately if we could get credibility with that end of the market, um, we would then be able to filter down to the retail end. I mean, what actually happened was that at the same time that the dot-com dot bubble burst, um, what also happened was that, I mean, this retail market had never really taken off anyway in the UK. It was much more of a US phenomenon, um, but it largely fizzled. Um, and those entities that had based their business model on that um, market found that that market just wasn't there. So, but we found that we were about the only people 
Um, perhaps the only startup, I would say the only startup that was doing financial commentary addressed at that professional audience. So, um, of course, it's very nice to have a, a, different, a, a sort of unique product, or at least a product with a unique twist, which is also um, nobody else is trying to compete with you, at least not initially. Now, of course, nowadays there are lots of people who are trying to do that, or not lots, but, but, but a number. Um, uh, apart from having a product, I mean, you need money. I mean, this goes without, probably goes without saying. Um, it, there is, I, certainly in our case, it took us about five years. I, this is being recorded, so um, <laughs> this may not be precisely accurate, but I think about, if we use the word about, about five years to get to break even. Um, and so we were only able to fund ourselves up to break even because we had raised equity um, from shareholders and we just, you know, each year the amount that we needed to dip into the bank um, was reduced. But um, we, it, you know, it's, it's, it's I, I, I don't think that a journalism business is likely to, I mean, maybe we could have done it faster, but I think that if you, op, if, it's not like other types of media, say for example, if you wanted to do public relations. Public relations is sort of quite easy, no, I'm not saying it's that easy, but um, if you can get a couple of good clients and you've got a couple of employees, you're there and you're, you're balancing your books, you know, pretty much from day one. Um, with the journalism, you need to create the product before you can actually get any revenue from it. And you need to produce that product probably for several years before the revenue that you're getting from it is going to cover your costs. And so you have to raise money. And so one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the pieces of advice I would give is raise, if you can raise money, raise money, raise more money than you think you're going to need, because you probably will need more. And don't be too greedy um, in, ter in, the, in terms of, of how, you know, how much of the equity you're going to try and keep for yourself. Um, you, know, if, you, you may have to be a little generous to your incoming shareholders. I mean, the other thing is working practices. I mean, this is certainly something that a startup has, um, it, which is a, an advantage compared to established um, organizations. Um, not only do you have that great initial excitement, um, you know, which we had, and our journalists were our ambassadors, and they were going all around the place saying how wonderful it was, breaking views, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, but they were prepared to work in different ways um, from other journalists. I mean, for example, we had our morning meeting at 7 a.m. Um, the Lex column, when I ran it, had its morning meeting, I think, at 10.30 a.m. So, and even after we set up, the FT tried to compete by producing something called Lex Live. Um, and they tried to get their journalists to come in early in the morning. And it was incredibly unpopular. And of course, it's a unionized environment. And they found it very, very hard. They managed to sort of do a sort of shift system, I think, where they'd get one person who very reluctantly would come in, I think, at about 8 a.m. or something. But it wasn't the same thing. And um, and we had given, actually, most of our journalists, I think all of our journalists had some form of equity 
in the company, so they were partly owners, and they weren't, so they had a different mentality. I think in the future, actually, if, if I did anything like this or if I advised people, I wouldn't necessarily give equity to everybody, um, but I would give, because I think, but I'd certainly have to give equity to the key people, the key journalists. Um, I felt some people didn't fully value it, whereas the key people really did value it. So, that, so, so then you have to find a business model. And as I said, this is not easy, and it certainly wasn't easy for us. Um, when in the middle of the dot-com mania, people uh, had sort of crazy ideas for business models and revenue models, but they, they weren't um, properly... Um, they weren't, most of them, they weren't properly thought through. You didn't need to have anything really very well thought through because it was so easy to raise money. You just wrote a business plan and you showed it to investors and people said, yippee, and this was a great, a great thing. Um, but, um, but then within a, about, well, pretty much almost exactly the time that we were raising our main chunk of money, the bubble burst. And this was both good and bad. I would say bad and good. I mean, it was bad because we didn't actually raise enough money. Um, the, 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 the idea at the time was that you shouldn't have a fully funded business plan. So if you needed, say, five million or something, you, you were, it was ridiculous to raise five million. What you should do is you should raise half a million, and then a few months later, you'd raise another one and a half million, say, but at that stage, you'd, get, you'd, you'd raise it to three times the value that you had three months before. And then uh, a couple of months later, you'd raise another couple of million at, again, three times the value that it had been before. So that, that was, that, that, of course, and all that was fine, so long as the, the bubble kept on um, inflating. But um, the bubble burst, and a lot of businesses found that they had um, partly funded business plans and went out of business because they ran out of money. We very rapidly um, changed course. We saw, fortunately, it because it burst literally as we were raising the money and because we were sort of financial journalists and uh, sort of understood a little bit about finance, um, not as much as we thought we did. Um, we, we did take rapidly action to conserve our cash. We, didn't, we were planning to blow it all on big advertising campaigns in the London underground, and um, we rapidly reined in um, some of those more extravagant things. Um, but we still need to find a way of how, where we were actually going to get revenue. And our initial idea before we, um, before we set up in our <coughs> initial business plan was that we were going to sell subscriptions. And then everybody said, you're crazy to sell subscriptions. If you said, the internet is, has to be free to air. Um, that's the only way that you're going to survive. And, and that's the only way that you're going to really sort of gather in the hundreds of thousands of readers. So we had a, so, so, we, so our next business plan, which we raised our money on the back of, was based on the idea of being free to air and getting a lot of money from advertising and also things like e-commerce and whatever. And that, but within a few months after starting, as I said, the business, the, the, the dot-com bubble burst, and we, I remember it was the first summer, it was in 
was I was in in the south of France on a on a on a short holiday. But the other thing is the other thing important thing is do take holidays. I mean, it's, I always took holidays throughout even the most intense periods because um, you need to refresh. And I was reflecting, and I thought if we go on like this, we're going to go bust. We will. We we you know even though we're not spending as much money as we were, we're still spending money. We're never going to get any money, and we've got to do something different. And so um, I decided that we had to impose a subscription charge. And um, so we did this, individual subscriptions. And we, you know, we went around the, the investment banks. And it was very good. The banks, they were very keen or, you know, to try it out. And they'd buy some subscriptions. And then they say, and then we say, well, why, why don't you, why don't, you know, you've got thousands of people. Why don't you take 1,000 subscriptions? And they say, mm, no, I think we'll just have 10 or something. <laughs> and we could see that, that hundreds of them were actually using this and they were sharing the you know the the, the logon details and 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 passwords am, among one another and, and we said no, no, no. we said look 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 we will give you you know i think 250 pounds a year was the basic subscription we'd say if you buy buy 100 there'll only be 100 pounds to go no, no no we'll buy we're very happy with only 10 and so after after this had been going on for and we only got one um serious bank to, that was prepared to buy a large number of subscriptions and play it completely honestly. So then um, after I, I think about another nine months, I, I realized definitely we're going to, you know, we're definitely going to head to bankruptcy. And so we then developed a new subscription model. And this model was, we called it enterprise subscriptions. And so we'd go to one of these big banks or you know, companies or fund managers and we'd say, um, well, you will have, you, we will sell you an enterprise subscription. You can't buy individual subscriptions any longer. You can only buy either for the whole company or for um, you know, the department. We'd, we'd allow a department to, to buy. So you could buy the equity department or the fixed income department. Or sometimes we'd love a, a, a let a sub-department, but, but we wouldn't allow them to say, well, they want one person from equities and one person from fixed income or one person from M&A. They would have to buy a whole, a whole chunk. And, and then they could have as many users as they wanted. But they'd, say, they, they'd often say to us, no, 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 we only want to have you know, um, uh, 10 users or something. They said, well, well, you can have 100. No, we only want 10. But, but well, we said, you have as many as you like, but the price is still the same. And the price was, you know, that stage we were charging, you know, I don't know, it's, they, they, these licenses, they went from about £10,000 to about £150,000 for big enterprises. And um, it was difficult. It was, took a multi-year effort because sometimes you were trying to push people up from, they'd had only paid like a couple of thousand pounds and you had to, how do you get them up to paying 50,000 pounds? It wasn't, wasn't easy. Um, but, but we found a business model that actually it worked. Now, um, for this to work, you have to have, um, you have to have, for, certainly for the business model that we had, you have to have content that people are prepared to pay for. And um, it, for it, it to, to create that content, it either has to be really good and different, or it 
has to be a must-read because it's influential and other people are reading it, or ideally both, which gets us onto the chicken and egg problem, um, which I'll come back to. But you also need to have a crack sales team. And um, this was one of the this was one of the biggest errors that we made. Um, in setting up Breaking Views was not to get a commercial team um, in place at the start. Um, and we had my brother, who was a, he was not a journalist, he's an entrepreneur, and he was a director, and he, his job, it was his job to find the commercial team. Um, but we, he then had a bit of a, there was the sort of, again, it comes down to the people side, there was a little bit of tension between him and my, my main partner. And so then my brother, he did find, he actually found a commercial team to um, lead the company. And so I said to him, well, look, it's probably because of this little bit of tension. Um, now that we've got the new commercial team that's coming in, you've done your job, you can go. But the problem is that the dot-com bubble just burst. And this commercial team, um, they were leaving um, you know, highly paid jobs in the consultancy world. Um, they decided they didn't want to come. And so we were left high and dry. We'd let my brother disappear, and we hadn't got the, the other team that we thought were going to come in. And so then um, I and my other key editors, we basically had to do the job of running the commercial side of the operation as well as the journalistic operation. And the fact is, we didn't know anything about commerce. Um, and so we were, and, and both of really, really serious jobs. And so we ultimately probably didn't do either as well as we could. And it became quite because because the you know this, this is about the momentum. I mean, it, because the the dot com bubble had burst, it became harder and harder to find anybody who wanted to join us because they thought they saw all of these businesses collapsing and going bust. Why should they leave to join something that was going to leave a good job to to get paid very little on the basis of equity, um, which might be worth zero. Um, so, sorry, I know I'm running a bit late, but um, I've got. I just want to address then this chicken and egg problem, which I think is the is the key one. And how did we do that? Well, the problem wasn't just getting a commercial team. Actually, that would have been that would, was probably if, if we'd done it dif differently, we would we would that wouldn't actually have been a problem. Uh, but the real problem was getting a good editorial team. Um, together. And we've just found, I mean, I did, my, my deputy, who was Jonathan Ford, who came from the FT2, so he joined with me. But we thought we'd be able to get some other people from the FT to join us. And we just couldn't persuade them for love or money to, to leave their safe berths at the FT. I mean, in more recent years, we've been able to recruit from the FT. But in the first few years, we couldn't. And, um, and Maybe we could have if we paid them a bit more, but anyway. But so we had to get a, we had to get a different team. So we went we we chose different types of people. We chose journalists who had more of an entrepreneurial mindset. And one of our you know great guys that we recruited is a man called Rob Cox, who was at Bloomberg, and he just had. He's just one of nature's entrepreneurs. And he now actually is running Breaking Views now that I've um, passed the reins um, on. 
Um, then we've got people who weren't really journalists at all. Um, there was a man called Eddie Chancellor, who was more of a sort of financial historian and um, who dabbled in a bit of sort of journalism and we persuaded him to come on board. And then we got some youngsters, like we got a very bright youngster who you know, was about 24, but very, very smart. Um, he wouldn't, he just, he probably wouldn't have got, I mean, he might have, he might have been able to, to join the FT at some point um, as in a junior role, but we were prepared to sort of put him in right at the deep end. So that's how we managed to assemble our, our journalistic team. Then we had this problem of how are we going to crack the problem of sources? Well, I mean, one thing we had, of course, is we all had sources to start off with. The fact that it was breaking views didn't mean anything, but I could say, well, I was Hugo Dixon. People knew me from running the Lex column from five, for five years, and my colleague Jonathan, he would have been on Lex with me, etc. So we had, our, we had our existing sources, but we were under no illusions that um, our sources would keep talking to us. Um, I, my view, if, if we couldn't actually create a, a readership, um, uh, my view was that we probably had between three and six months um, that, to, that people would still take our telephone calls, um, and depending on how much they liked us. So that was so. so we, but we had that. That gave us a, a bit of the initial momentum. Um, in our case, we chose our shareholders well. A lot of our we had about forty shareholders most of whom were in some form or fashion involved in the financial markets. And so they were really good sources. Um, and um, we had a very vigorous public relations effort. Um, one of our directors and, um, was, uh, it was a man called Roland Rudd, who ran one of the city's top financial PR firms, and so he was both pushing out how great Breaking Views was, um, but he was also, you know, just generally to, to anyone he came across, but he was also pushing this message among his clients. And so his, his clients, who were a lot of the big companies in, in Britain, were, and a little bit more outside the UK, were, um, were always willing to talk to us. And then we did have that extra edge, which is that in the comments space, we were the first. And so we were there at 7 o'clock in the morning. So if there were companies who you know, were doing a deal or raising some money or launching their results, sacking their chief executive or whatever they were doing, um, there was a window between 7 o'clock and, say, 10 o'clock where they were used to talking to the wires, Reuters, Bloomberg, Dow Jones, AP, whatever. Um, they weren't used to talking to any commentators at that moment in time because the commentary people were getting in, as I say, at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. But there was that window. So who were they going to talk to? Well, they talked to us. Um, so that's how we dealt with the sources problem. And then there was a question, how were we going to deal with the readers? And we had a very lucky break, which is that I got a call from um, the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com, who had seen that I left the FT and they wanted to um, see whether some of our comments might appear on WSJ.com, but in Europe. Now, WSJ.com in Europe, even then, 
well, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great um, platform, but it was okay. And, I mean, in, in the States, it's a great platform, WSJ.com. But what, what we had a meeting in Waterloo Station, and I said, look, I'm very happy to do something with WSJ.com, but really what I'd like is to have a column in the Wall Street Journal in print, in initially just the European version of the Wall Street Journal, which we had a daily col column on the back page of the Wall Street Journal in Europe. Eventually, it became global. Um, and this immediately gave us readership and credibility. Even though the, there weren't that many readers of the Wall Street Journal in Europe, it still was a great position and it had a, um, it, it sort of announced to the world that we'd arrived. And then on the back of that, we went round a whole series of other newspapers. We had a, a daily column in Repubblica, in La Repubblica in Italy. We had. Uh, one in France, in Handelsblatt in Germany, and, and, and over the years we actually got others. And we had the New York Times, we had Le Monde, we had a lot of, they came and they went, but um, we had lots of them, and there's still I think there are about a dozen of them that have these data columns, which have done, um, you know, in a sense it was odd, we used old-fashioned print as one of the ways of giving our new internet business a leg up. And the main purpose was visibility, credibility, um, but it also produced money. Now, nowadays, you can't get that much money out of the newspaper's syndication, but those days, the newspaper industry hadn't quite cottoned on to how desperate its financial condition was going to be, and they were prepared to pay fairly good money. And so actually, our, before the subscriptions took off, our, one of the ways that we managed to survive was, and we never covered our books from syndication, but we were able to say, well, look, we're one of the few dot-coms that actually has got revenue. None of the revenue was coming from the internet. It was all coming from old media, but it was revenue. Um, and um, again, one of the things that helped w w for us was, um, again, was our shareholders. This is in terms of the readership, because we had these shareholders, about, as I said, about 40 of them. They were well positioned uh, sort of within a lot of the main investment banks, and they were happy to help us you know, open the doors for us to get access to their colleagues to sell them subscriptions. Initially, you'd do a big free trial, and then you'd roll it out and, 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 and get, hopefully, you know, one of these 50 or 100,000 pound contracts. Um, and the last thing I'd say about, about this chicken and egg problem is content, stories. Um, perhaps I should say, last but not least, um, as I mentioned before, we had this focus on a particular type of journalism. We called it agenda-setting financial insight. Um, we said there were four different, you know, s sort of aspects of that. One was that we were first with the views, so speed mattered. Second was value for time, so everything had to be short and snappy rather than waffly and long-winded. One of the dangers with the internet, actually, is that, that there is no real space constraint, and so journalists can go on and on and on and on and on. If you don't put an artificial um, constraint in place, and we put artificial constraints in place. We were rigorous in saying that no, 
any article had to be 350 words or less. And, if, and journalists, they always like to write more than 350 words. And so what we do is, was, is then, then we insisted as editors that when they submitted their copy for editing, they didn't just submit the copy, but they, of course, we could do the word count on word just as easily as them, but we forced them to put the number of words on the bottom of the piece before they submitted it. Um, then we said it had to have analytical depth, so there was this, that was the third attribute. And then the final one was that it should be enjoyable, because although we were selling this as a serious work product, um, we didn't feel it ought to be hard work for people to read it. And we launched with some fairly eye-catching campaigns. Um, we were the sort of the new kid on the block, and we were able to be a little bit more racy in our commentary. I mean, this is all finance, but you know, but still. Um, and so there was one campaign that I particularly liked, which was against the leadership of British Telecom (BT). And the chairman, executive chairman, was called Ian Valance. And we decided that he, was, he really had to go because he mismanaged the company. And so we'd written, we wrote these articles saying this and quite you know, strong. But we also had one of these, as part of our advertising campaign, we had this van. You know what ad vans are? These big vans with sort of billboards on the side of them. And um, the BT's headquarters is just by St. Paul's Cathedral. It's sort of on a, on, on a traffic, a large traffic island by St. Paul's Cathedral. And we had this van going round and round <laughs> the BT headquarters with, on, on, on the, the advert said, Valance, 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 out, out, out. I mean, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't sophisticated, but it got us noticed. <laughs> Um, the other thing I'd just say on stories is we were we were very fortunate um, that uh, you know you, 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 that our main competitor that's the FT. I mean, we saw initially it was very much just the Lex column, but as time went by, we we we, we saw us, ourselves competing more with the FT as, as a whole. There was a period um, soon after we started when the FT really just sort of took its eye off the ball or on the city, which was our core audience. They decided to try to be more general, and they were doing a lot of stuff on, so they had an attempt to get into sports coverage and things like that. And they took their eye off the ball, of, of, off the city, off the core city audience. And that gave us a great um, opening. Meanwhile, at the Lex column, which was our real core sort of competitor, the leadership kept changing. And I think in the 10 years that I was, um, or 13 years, I suppose, that I was running Breaking Views, they probably had about at least seven different leaders. So there was a rotating door. And so it's, even however bright you are, it actually takes quite a bit of time to get established in this area. So that's the story of Breaking Views. I'm sorry I've gone on longer than I, I should have. Um, it is somewhat um, a unique story, but I do think that some of the issues that we faced do have relevance for um, other journalism startups.